Let's uh, look at the top of page six and have a bit of an overlap. And we're in Judges chapter three tonight, looking at three judges, we hope. We'll get that from Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah. Barak, of course, is involved. At the top of page six in your notes, just having an important overlap here. We always want to apply the scriptures to our own day. It has to have an application. This certainly does. Now, this book of Judges, of course, which carries on from the book of Joshua, uh, the way in which Joshua first conquered some of the land from the uh, Canaanite tribes and other tribes that were hostile and idolatrous. But we know that they couldn't capture all of the land because Israel was disobedient in many parts. And if you look at the top of page six, the book of Judges is the inspired record and the revelation of God's faithfulness and Israel's failure, which is what we have right through the book. And uh, they compromised with the nations, as we'll see a bit later on, that they married their pagan wives and they even worshiped their idolatrous gods, which are no gods at all. And of course, the thing is, we have to apply that to our day as well. In the church, there is weakness, as there was in Israel. And the world made in and does make inroads into the church today, in line four, page six. And that's true. So like in the churches at Pergamos and Thyatira in the book of Revelation, there was the compromise, as we know, we see about some of those things later on. And the problem is that the as you find in the church today, especially in what we call the emerging church movement, the pleasures of entertainment enter the church under the idea of bringing people into the church building, but not into Christ by salvation and the new birth. That's the emerging church particularly. Giving them what they want, get them in, and help them enjoy themselves, not the preaching of the gospel. So as you got here, under the book of, and the leadership of judges, Israel began well. They began to conquer the land. But as we find continuously in this book of Judges, Israel left their first priority to love and serve the Lord. Compromise, coldness of heart set in with conformity to these outside godly influences. That's a problem even with the church today. The world makes inroads into the church and uh, people get lukewarm, like the Revelation 2 and 3 churches. And that is a problem. Uh, like the uh, church... Uh, at Ephesus, which is in Revelation 2. The first generation really on fire for the Lord, but the second generation lost their first love and grew cold. And what did Jesus say? In the last days, human hearts grow cold. And I think that can even affect the church as well. And you can see the end of the second paragraph is a quote from Proverbs 4, verse 23. Keep your heart with all diligence, great carefulness. For out of it spring the issues of life. That's where you determine things. Now in Judges chapter 3, which is what we're looking at this evening, uh, you can see at the beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3, now these are the nations which the Lord left to prove Israel by them. So that's what he did. And uh, Israel was tested by the Lord. And there are many people, as it says in verse 1, who had not known the wars of Canaan. They weren't alive in Joshua's time. It was a next generation. They didn't know much about warfare. This was a new generation. And uh, it's often true that uh, 
the older generation know what it is to uh, battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil, but younger Christians, they're not aware of this at all, and the spiritual warfare we're all involved in. That's why we need God's armor. So that's certainly very true. So let's just have a look at Judges chapter 3, read verse 1. Let's look at verse 4. Why were those nations left in the land of Canaan, now Israel? They were there to prove Israel, to know whether they would hearken or listen unto the commands of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses, going back a bit, of course, before Joshua. They were there, left in the land to prove them. What would they do? Would they seek the Lord for victory? Would they seek the Lord prayerfully for winning the battles? Some did, some didn't. So when we come through to verse 5, Judges chapter 3 and verse 5, the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Pelotites, Hivites, and Jebusites. In other words, the enemies. And the Jebusites, as you know, uh, controlled Jerusalem, or Jebus, as it was originally called, and David captured it many years later. And the children of Israel dwelt among them, as in verse 5. Look at verse 6. And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons and served their gods. Doesn't that remind you of Solomon's time? He began well. God gave him wisdom. God gave him much wealth. God gave him a great deal of influence, like he did with the Queen of Sheba. But then when he married many wives and they turned his head did he have about 800 wives and concubines or something? And they turned his head away from the Lord, and he put the idols of these gods of these nations in the temple. He began well, but he finished poorly. There's a challenge there for us all, isn't it? As we get older in the Lord, stay faithful to the Lord. So that's what the situation is. They served and worshipped these false deities, and the Lord warned them not to do that. Let's go into verse 8 and see what the Lord did. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. That's something, isn't it? And he sold them into the hand of Chushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Chushan Rishathaim eight years. Not very long, actually. Now, it's interesting. You see in verse 8, this man's name. I know I mentioned it, I think, a couple of weeks ago. And it is particularly interesting, as you have it in verse 8. The name of this man... Kushan Rishathayim means blackness of double wickedness. How about that for a name? I wouldn't like that, would you? And it's associated, look at the background, associated with Nimrod, way back in Genesis, a descendant of Cush from Ham, the father of Canaan. And he was cursed by God, as you know, back in Genesis chapter 9, verse 25. I won't go back there. It wasn't a very pleasant time. So Israel then was under servitude, or almost like a slavery, uh, to this king of Mesopotamia for eight years. And they'd suffered oppression for this time, as they often did from their enemies. So what it is today, what is it? How about the application to the church today? Well, we've got to, even the church can become accustomed to present conditions. You can get adapted to it like the frog in cold water, which is warmed up slowly until he doesn't know he, it's very boiling, and become numb and insensitive to the issues around us in the world. How easy that is. To be aware of the things we have in the world that is against us, but become insensitive to it, or play so, and get numb to it, and we don't do anything. 
I bring something right up to date. One thing I heard, what is going to be planned by the government soon, if it gets through. And that is that if any Christian group meets for more than six hours, they will have Ofsted to come in and examine them. And if they don't meet Ofsted's approval, it's cancelled. Finished. There are many other things, too, coming in, making inroads into Christian meetings. I don't think that's passed as law yet, but uh, that is a threat. So that's what it is. Now, what's the church going to do about that? Who's going to stand up and speak up? And so we don't get much influence, do we? We're, we're not anybody particularly. But will our spiritual leaders that do have some clout in the land, will they speak up? I don't think they will. I wish they would, but I don't think so. So Israel, of course, was turned away like Solomon was to worship the gods of other nations and marry these wrong wives. And they were heading in the wrong direction. Well, that can be the church as well. There's real danger here. So Israel was given over to this king of Mesopotamia, which means, as you can see there, the uh, blackness of double wickedness. Oh, my. Talk about a satanic man. There you have it, don't you? So there was this godless regime. Go back to chapter 2 for a moment, would you? It's in your notes, middle of the page. And look at verses 20 and 21. Here again, the Lord was very angry with Israel. Chapter 2 of Judges 20 and 21. And the anger of the Lord was hot against us, and he said, Because of this people hath transgressed my covenant, Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, which I commanded their fathers, so that will be the Abrahamic one, and have not hearkened or listened to my voice. There's a great danger when we don't take God's word to our heart, because it's God's voice to us. That's certainly true. Right, back in Judges chapter 3, and look in verse 9. And when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel who delivered them, even Othniel. Now, we're going to look at Othniel as our first judge, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Now, it's very interesting because in a moment we're going back to the first chapter and see what a brave man uh, Othniel was. And he defeated this king. It was clear enough. And uh, if you look in verse... 10, you'll find something very interesting. This is the first occasion when we read about the Spirit of the Lord coming upon a person, the first time in the Bible. And that is very significant. When you see something happen for the first time in Scripture, take an important note of it. And the Spirit of the Lord, verse 10, came upon him, Othniel, and he judged Israel and went out to war, and the Lord delivered Chushan Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed against and the land had rest 40 years. And then, of course, Hophniel then died. Very successful judge and a godly man, as we know. Well, there are other places you can see just below the middle part of uh, page 6 there. Though there are others um, where the Spirit of the Lord came upon them. And we know very well, Zechariah 4, verse 6, where it says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, Zechariah 4, 6. That applies to everything. Unless the Holy Spirit leaves us, directs us, empowers us, and strengthens us, we shall face defeat. It's work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel. The secret of the strength of these judges who had victory after victory was the Spirit of the Lord who came upon them. 
It's interesting, and in Ephesians chapter 5, we get this phrase, be filled with the Spirit. Then later on in that same chapter, and the beginning of chapter 6, we see the whole thing. Why does it say, be filled with the Spirit? The real phrase is, be controlled by the Spirit. Just like these judges. Because after that, after Ephesians 5.18, it then speaks about the Christian husband, the Christian wife, the Christian marriage, the Christian family, and then in chapter 6, the responsibilities of children to obey the Lord and to obey their parents. In other words, what the Lord is aiming at here is a spirit-controlled marriage, a spirit-controlled husband, a spirit-controlled wife, a spirit-controlled family, and hopefully spirit-controlled children if they know the Lord. I found that a very interesting link up between the term be filled with the Spirit and what it says about Christian husbands, Christian wives, Christian marriages, Christian families, Christian children, hopefully. Or even those who are not. Very significant. Spirit-controlled Christians. Very important. And today we know very well that uh, Christian marriage is being attacked. Christian families are being attacked. And children are being attacked as never before to be totally independent, even of their parents. There's a warfare on the family. And don't we know it? Christian marriages in particular. That's just by the way, but that's very important to know that. So, of course, the Lord remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he came to help. But the problem was, it's mentioned two or three, three times, I think, in the book of Judges, that when there was no king in Israel, everybody did what was right in his own eyes. Mm -hmm. And that's the very last verse of Judges in chapter 21 and verse 25. When there was no king in Israel, no one with authority, no one with leadership capability, no one to lead the nation. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Call that anarchy, if you like. And trouble all the way through. The cycle, of course, when Israel disobeyed the Lord, and in disobeying the Lord, uh, they worship other false gods, other, well, false gods, and uh, married pagan women, daughters to the pagan sons, and took all on board that which was godless completely. And the Lord allowed the enemy to come in. He allowed the enemy to come in. And then, of course, they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up a deliverer, and in that warfare, they had victory. That is repeated, as you know, many times in the book of Judges. No, there are about 14 judges, um, including Samuel and Eli in, in the book that goes under the first Samuel. And you know, you think about this. At the same time as the book of Judges, there's the book of Ruth. And there you have the book of Ruth with, with uh, of course, uh, Naomi and uh, her two daughters-in-law. And the two sons died and uh, of uh, Naomi. The husband died as well. And uh, they had a very hard time. But there was Ruth, the Gentile, who became so uh, involved with Israel and stood by Naomi. And there was a Gentile, a Gentile, who stood by Israel after all these troubles of the book of Judges. I found that most interesting. No wonder the book of Ruth is after the book of Judges. I think that must be the Holy Spirit leading there. That's just by the way, anyway. 
So let's uh, continue. We're in page six on Judges chapter three. So God acted in mercy and remembered his covenant with Abraham. And yet, as, you, as I said, Judges is a picture of a downward trend that can happen in the church. Some periods you've got a peak of revival, then you've got a downward peak of apostasy in the church, and then it rises up again in God's mercies. That's the trends of the church age anyway. And you find that in the churches of the book of Revelation 2 and 3. The church at Ephesus began well in the first generation. The second generation lost its first love. And the whole trend in those seven churches is leading to complete failure in the church at Laodicea. Interesting. You can compare the book of Judges with Revelation 2 and 3. Interesting. And we'll see about that a bit more. You've got that here in your notes, about three inches above the bottom of the page, six. Ephesus to Laodicea and the parables in Matthew 13, which you know, began well with the sowing of the seed, with some value there, and you go right through to the last parable of the judgment of the dragnet. Right through. And that's where Laodicea is, like the parable of the dragnet, Matthew 13. Failure and judgment happened to Israel time and time again. So, last paragraph, last two paragraphs, page six. The book of Judges is a picture of today, failure in most faithful, faithfulness in a minority. A few are faithful. A remnant is always there. God always has a remnant. He's always had a remnant of Israel. Faithful. Even Elijah thought he was on his own. And the Lord said, we know the 7,000 are not bad. They need to bail. And the prophet Obadiah looked after them in caves. It's a lot to look after, isn't it? There was Elijah. And then Elisha, faithful to the Lord. A minority. There's always a minority faithful, even in the church, right through the centuries. That's just by the way. So, look at Judges chapter 2 and verse 10 for a moment, would you? The problem is, you see, as with Israel, so with the church. There are times when God really blessed the church. Many people were saved. There's a power of the church. It was an influence on the nation and nations. Look in, Josh, in Judges chapter 2 and verse 10. All the generation were gathered to their fathers, as Joshua... And the elders, Joshua died, eight and nine. The generation were gathered to their fathers, and there was another generation after them which knew not the law. Isn't that true today? See, judges are so applicable to life today. We're in a generation that doesn't know the law, and I would say at least two generations. A friend of mine was having some help because she was ill, and uh, one of the social services helpers came in and of course naturally this person witnessed and she said I never heard of Jesus and she was about 20 that's our generation I've never heard of Jesus I didn't know what happened to him dying on the cross no knowledge at all I wonder how many times that's multiplied in our nation that's a fact that is quite recently well there it is you see a generation and further generations that didn't know the Lord, nor even that the work that God did in Israel and this generation, two generations don't know what God has done in the past. Oh, I know it's a long time ago, 1904-5 revival. There's a revival in 1956 or 58 down in Lowestoft in Suffolk. 
Maybe most Christians don't know about that one. I read an interesting book how the, the Lord raised up a Baptist pastor in Lowestoft, really prepared him for the revival. And the revival started among the Trollmen in Lowestoft, and as he went up to the fishing up in the North Sea and on the east side into the ports in Scotland, the revival went up there as well with the fishermen as well. Interesting. But you see, again, well, I wouldn't expect many people to know it. It just happened that I haven't read the book, that's all. But uh, you see, we think uh, we don't think about revivals today. There may be little pockets of revival. I can't see a national revival coming. But that's, by the way, but it's very interesting. Let's keep it a living situation. So is this not a picture of perhaps 2,000 years of church history since the day of Pentecost? And there may come a time when even the church, ordinary people like us, cry out to the Lord for his mercy on what's developing in our country. The world is making inroads into the church, and we're not making a protest about it. I wish our spiritual leaders had influence. We don't have much. Not really. But so Israel cried out for deliverance, and God raised up um, the judge. We're looking at Othniel in chapter 3 of Judges on page 6 of your notes. So we have here the time when Israel cried out to the Lord for his help. And yet, as we move on in the book of Judges, and you've got it here in your notes, when we get through to chapter 13, they didn't even bother to cry out to the Lord. They felt so defeated, they never bothered. Look at chapter 13, verse 1 with me. It's in your notes. Chapter 13 of Judges. Are we like that today? Chapter 13, verse 1. You see in chapter 13, verse 1, that when Israel did evil, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years, chapter 13 and verse 1. Now go to chapter 15, verse 11. Same context, chapter 15, verses 11, and we'll read verse 12 as well. You can have verse 12 in your notes. Chapter 15 of Judges, and we look at verse 11 and 12. 3,000 men of Judah went to the top of the rock, Etam, said to Samson, now these are people of Israel, Judah, said to Samson, don't you know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What is it that you've done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, so I've done unto them. And they said to him, we are come to bind you, that we may deliver you into the hand of the Philistines. That was the people of Judah, part of Israel want to deliver their own judge to their enemy. What are we doing in our day? I think we're delivering the church to the enemy sometimes. With the emerging church and false teachers, all these things coming into our church, and we're letting it all happen. We're delivering the church over to the false ones. See how much judges are applicable to today. The problem was that they were happy to do it. Bottom paragraph, even good men do nothing. Evil men hand us over to the enemy. True today. The growing, weakening position and attitude to the Lord in his righteous ways. The church gets weak. Why is that? Comfort, easygoing, compromise. So what was it about Israel? The blurring of the edges between the ways of the Lord and the ways of the world. Same with the church. Last two lines. Israel behaved like the pagans among them whom they dwelt and intermarried with them. Let's go to page seven. 
So as you go through the book of Judges, as I say, we looked at chapter 13 in the hand of the Philistines, chapter 15 when the men of Judah wanted to bind Samson and hand him over to the Philistines, their bitter enemy. And so things got progressively worse. And the church is getting progressively worse since Pentecost right through to the Laodicean age. Total apostasy. Of course, by that time the church had been taken to be with the Lord, I know. But nevertheless, that's the trend, isn't it? So, what about our spiritual leaders? Are they handing the church over to the enemy? Through compromise and weakness? When we come through to Gideon, Gideon was a strong man for the Lord, as we see when we get through to chapter 6, 7, and 8. And Samson, he began well too. Like Solomon, he began well. But there was a decline after Gideon right through to the very end. And so Samson, in the end, as you know, he was imprisoned, he was blinded, he was chained, but he killed more Philistines than that when he pulled the pillars on than all the rest of his time. Victory over the Philistines. But he ended up in complete weakness, shame, bondage, in chains, and blind. I wonder whether the church will end up like that too. Apostasy. That's what Jesus said to the Laodiceans, didn't he? You're blind and you're naked. You can't see your need. Interesting, isn't it? Well, there's just no thoughts I've had to that. So there's a need today for a real recovery. In little groups, faithful fellowships, it's good. Largely in the land, the church is weak and has no influence. We're not salt and light. For example, where are the Christian MPs? There are some, in all parties, no doubt. The Christian MPs, will they stand up and speak out against this possible law coming through? I don't know. A tiny voice and a large number of MPs. Not much influence. Pity. I wish there would be. Samuel, was it William Wilberforce, when he stood up in Parliament, it was the end of slavery. Mm, interesting, isn't it? There was a man who stood up and they accepted what he said. I wish that was so today with Christians or MPs. I'm not judging them. It's just some concern. So, looking at Othniel in chapter 3. We'll go back to chapter 1 in a minute about Othniel. We're going to look at Othniel, Ehud, and uh, hopefully if we get time, I'll look at uh, Deborah with Barak. But here are some men who are prepared to step out obedient to the Lord, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon them, the Spirit of the Lord controlled them, gave them the strength, and that's what it is. They stepped out in faith, they trusted the Lord, they sought God's help. And Gideon, as you know, started with 32,000. God said, don't want all those. They compromised. Some wanted to go home, some wanted this or that, and the other, some had little faith at all. It came down to 300 men. Interesting. But you see, there are people who work alone. Samson worked alone. Ehud worked on his own. Sometimes God has to use the ones and raise up one to be a voice, to be a leader. Boy, we need that today. Samson's like that. He worked on his own. Ehud worked on his own. Gideon just had this 300, just a small number. That's how it was. So in other words, 
these leaders did have an influence on the nation. They gathered the nation together in their weakness and their sense of defeat, and they rallied them together, and they won. When the Spirit of the Lord came upon them, when they repented, they cried out to the Lord, God forgave them, he raised up the leader, and they went to defeat the enemy. Apply it to today? Oh, I wish so. Well, Othniel then was the first child. Let's go back and see the initial part of Othniel in chapter 1. Read of him first in chapter 1 of Judges. Go to verse 12. Verse 12 of Judges chapter 1. As you can see, he was, as you read in chapter 3, Caleb's son-in-law. <coughs> How did that come about? Well, chapter 1, verse 12. Caleb said, Is He that smiteth Kiriath Jephir and takes it to him when I give Achsham my daughter to wife. And Othniel, here he is, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it and he gave him Achsah, his daughter, to wife. And it came to pass when she came to him, um, that's her father, that she moved him to ask of her father's field, and she alighted from off her house, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said, Give me a blessing, for thou hast given me a south land, give me also springs of water. Caleb gave her the upper springs and the nether springs. And uh, so there was Othniel, and he married Caleb's daughter. And uh, you can see there's still a relationship anyway. So it was possible in those days. So look, look in uh, chapter 3 and verse 1. Israel was being proved and tested by the Lord. And as we read through, let's go through from verse 7. Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. He raised up Othniel um, against this king Shushan Rithathayim, which means the double wickedness. And they were enslaved by them. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Verse 9, the Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel, even Othniel. Here he is the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, verse 10. He judged Israel, went out to war, and of course he won and defeated this evil king. And the land had rest for 40 years. So look at that. But you see, he was no novice. As you can see uh, in the middle of page 7 there, that uh, Othniel was not a novice. He overcame giants and conquered their city, uh, that's in chapter 1, 12 to 15. He might have been 75 years of age. Not a young man, but a mature man. Proven in life and service, walking in fellowship with God. He had a pure and a spiritual wife, which he looked at, Caleb's daughter, and she backed him up. She was able to give support and encouragement, and that's what Christian husbands need, the support and backing up of a godly, spirit-filled wife. That's what is needed there. But just before that, God uses weakness in order to get things done. Because if man is boastful in his so-called strength, nothing gets done that way. Let's go to 1 Corinthians. You've got the reference there. Go into the New Testament to 1 Corinthians 1, which is applicable. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And look at 25 to 30, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 25 to 30. 1 Corinthians 1, 25 to 30. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God, by so-called, is stronger than men. 
God isn't weak. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. Let's read on a bit further. And of base things of the world, and things that are despised, hath God chosen, yea, and things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, are famous, are strong, are so-called. That no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto his wisdom, and righteousness, and sanctification, setting us apart, and redemption. The Lord uses the weak people. Well, that's it, so he gets the glory. Even the Apostle Paul said, I come to you churches in weakness. And so he did. That the strength of the Lord will be upon him. We'll see about that in just a moment. That's so with many of us. Think of Mary Magdalene, an immoral woman possessed by demon spirits. She was the first person to see Jesus alive. The first person Jesus spoke to. Interesting, isn't it? Well... Anyway, let's just carry on then. And uh, we've got here that Othniel, the leader, 75 years of age perhaps, a godly man. And here we have a situation that he led against this strong man, this man of Chushan Rishathayim, the man of double blackness. Oh my, what a name. And that was a spiritual victory over the forces of the devil, if you like, as is expressed. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on then. Um, just before, where it says in the paragraph, then and now in days of contention, they were then, and today the twisting and wresting of Scripture away from its true meaning and mooring. Isn't that happening today? Replacement theology is the same thing. Twisting Scripture away from its real meaning which leads to Christian anti-Semitism. Let's look at 2 Peter 3.16. I've got that underlined in your notes. 2 Peter 3.16. Here Peter speaks about Paul, how difficult it is in Paul's writings. It's the second part of the verse I want. 2 Peter 3, verse 16. Second part of the verse. But read the verse. All his, as Paul's epistles, Speaking them of these things, which are some things hard to understand, yes, that's true, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest or wrestle with, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Jude writes his short one chapter letter about apostates and doing the same thing. People who twist scriptures wrestle it out of its true literal meaning and many scriptures it says to their own destruction well that would be the apostates not Christians but some Christians do indeed mess the scriptures up and misinterpret it and don't we know it very well uh, let's find another one while we're looking in the scriptures go back to Second Timothy uh, I'll add, if you can add that if you like because I wrote it in today Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 you see, in 2 Peter 3, there are those who twist the scriptures, take them out of context, take them out of context, and give a wrong teaching. 
Look in 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. What is the real thing that we should be doing? 2 Timothy 2, and verse 15. Study to show yourself approved to God. Get into the word. A workman that needs not to be ashamed. Work at it. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Not twisting it, but rightly dividing it. The word of truth. That's what we should be doing. And God does guide through his word. And the scriptures are an anchor, aren't they? As our Lord Jesus is. By faith. That's certainly true. Well, getting back to Judges chapter 3, we find that uh, Israel was suffering under the hand of their enemies. Othniel delivered them. He was a, certainly a man of God, and the land had rest for 40 years. And in verse 11 of chapter 3, Othniel had died. Now, I want you to just go back for a moment, because you're going to be looking at a place called Gilgal in a little while. And I mentioned this before. It's worthwhile going through this again. In chapter 2 of the book of Judges, look in chapter 2 and verse 1. The angel of the Lord, of course, is the Lord Jesus in his theophany before he became incarnate here. An angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt. I brought you out of the land which I swore to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. You shall make no league or agreement with the inhabitants of the land. You shall throw down their altars, for you have not obeyed my voice. Why have we done this? And so on. That's the Lord speaking. And they were at Gilgal. What's significant about Gilgal? Well, in Joshua's time, they moved across the Jordan River, as you know, and they landed up on the other side in Canaan, and they came to this first city, Gilgal. And at Gilgal, two things happened. They renewed the Passover. They renewed the covenant with the Lord. And also, they circumcised the males. Now, circumcision is just a covenant of the flesh. We're not interested in that. But we are interested in the circumcision of the heart. What does circumcision mean? being set apart, set, circumcision of the heart, set apart for the Lord. And that's what they wanted at Gilgal. But things went so wrong, they went, it came up, the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal, where they had been, to the place called Bokim, which means weeping. So they moved from the place of covenant and agreement, movement being set aside, circumcision meaning and remembering the Passover, celebrating the Passover, remembering what happened coming out of Egypt, and then the things went ever so wrong until it came to the point of weeping. Isn't that sad? But that is a picture of the book of Judges. The move from what might have been covenant and separation being set apart for the Lord, with the compromise, with the intermarriage, worship of other gods, disobedience to the Lord, and resulted in the place of weeping. I mentioned that before, but I think that's very, very important. Look in the last paragraph. Uh, you've got that in chapter 2, 1 to 5, uh, which I've added here. Look in verses 19. Why well, is in Judges 2? Look in Judges 2, verse 19. When the judge was dead, that's a picture of all these, that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers. 
in following other gods to serve them and to bow down unto them, they ceased not from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. Bokim, the place of weeping. I'll say, look in verse 9, that's verse 19. Look in verse 20. Yeah, that's uh, verse 23. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out hastily. Now they delivered he them into the hand of Joshua. Even Joshua couldn't win because the people were not ready. So that's just a thought there which I added to it. Gilgal was a place where they also fed on the food of Canaan and not on the wilderness manna. They were entering into a new land and a new experience and they failed the Lord. We need to feed on Christ as I've got here. And uh, now we have our risen man in glory, praise the Lord, but he's God the Son. I'd like you to go now to Colossians chapter 3 and then we'll have a break in just a moment. Colossians chapter 3 and this is a picture for the church. Compare this with what was for Israel. They were in Gilgal, the place of covenant, the place of renewing the Passover, the place of circumcision and separation. In the new land where they had the food of Canaan, the food of new life. Spiritualizing for the church. Look in Colossians chapter 3 then, verses 1 to 4. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. That's spiritual circumcision. For you're dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ who is alive shall appear, then you shall appear with him in glory. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, for and against all, all these other things. In other words, not the circumcision of the flesh, but the circumcision of the heart. Put away those evil things. Seek the things that are above. Set your affection there. Set your heart there. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be, said Jesus. For we're dead in trespasses and sins, but we're alive unto Christ. Sentence has been passed upon us at the cross. Our sins have been judged, yes, but our life is in Christ. And he's coming. And you will appear with him in glory as well. So it's worthwhile hanging on there. Let's look at the last few lines. Preoccupation with Christ in glory, triumphant over sin, death, and hell, will preserve the child of God from fleshly domination. When Christ and the Christian faith are no longer unpopular and persecuted, favor and acceptance by the world is a result, which thoroughly weakens the church and its witness. As a result, the desires of the flesh and easy comforts hold sway. Comfort loving church. I finish here with this comment, and I thought this a bit earlier. When Simeon presented Jesus at the temple, no doubt it was probably circumcision as well, in Jewishness, Simeon realized who Jesus was, of course. He said, Now let your servant depart in peace. I've seen your Messiah. But the point is there what Jesus said to Mary. He is a sign that will be spoken against. You check that in Luke 2. I think it's in Luke 2. He will be a sign spoken against. Anyone who walks with the Lord in the church and follows Christ will have opposition. And you will be spoken against by those out in the side of the world. Set yourself thinking on those things that are above. Let's make sure our feet are planted on the earth, yes, to be his witnesses. 
but our thoughts are there with him. That's important. We are a sign spoken against. The church is persecuted, always has been. Christ was a sign spoken against. The church is a sign spoken against. Let's have a break. Well, I've got to tell you what Othniel means, but I've got it on the middle of page seven. You didn't turn to it. We'll go on to page eight in a moment. But Othniel means the Lion of God or the one who has a seasonable speaking of God, a seasonable speaking of God. It's the middle of page seven. I forgot to mention that. Now we're going on to page eight. We're looking at another judge, and his name is Ehud. It's in chapter three. We'll just look at it. Scanning through in chapter 3 from verse 12 right through to the end is about Ehud. Just scan this through. You can see again in verse 12 of Judges chapter 3, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he allowed Eglon, king of Moab, to come against them. And uh, they took over a lot of the land. Verse 14, uh, children of Israel served or were enslaved by this king of Moab for 18 years. And the usual picture is that... Uh, they cried out to the Lord for deliverance, and he raised up Ehud, verse 15. Now notice in verse 16, this man Ehud. And what did he say? It's interesting, verse 16. Ehud made him a dagger, which had two edges of cubit length, that's about 17 to 19 inches, and he did gird it under his raiment upon his right thigh, and he went to visit this, uh, this awful king, Eglon, which we'll look at in just a moment. Ehud made himself a dagger which had two edges. We have a two-edged sword, which is the word of God, the Holy Spirit being the author. But you notice this man, Ehud, he took a piece of steel and he made it into a dagger. He used the steel and made it into a dagger. How much do we really make use of the word of God as our tool? It's the sword of the spirit, isn't it? And that is like a reference we can use from here. So what did Ehud do? Well, he went to, he brought a present, verse 17, to King Eglon. He was a very fat man, verse 17, that's the key thing. And uh, he went, and you notice in verse 19, this is interesting. I turned again from the quarries which were by Gilgal. Now in the quarries they made stone idols. I told you that Gilgal was a place where they rededicated themselves to the Lord, observed the Passover, circumcised them, set themselves apart, circumcision of the flesh, and they continued in that covenant of the Lord. Then that was a very place where idols were made in the quarries. What a turnaround. You see, we've known revivals in the past in the church, but what a turnaround. Very relevant, isn't it? We look at that as you go down. It's a... Uh, you see that, what he says here in uh, verse 19. He turned again from the quarries that were by Gilgal, and he said he went into to, uh, this king, and uh, he wanted to have a private interview with him, of course, 19 and 20. And 
Ehud put forth his left hand, verse 21, took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And he was a fat man, and his fat clothes over the very length of the blade. My, he must have been very fat, wasn't he? It wasn't a very nice thing at all. But Ehud went out, he managed to escape out of the way, and the servants came in, thought he was just having private time in his chamber. And But he got out of the way. Verse 26, Ehud escaped while they were tired and passed beyond the quarries and escaped the Serath. And uh, then he blew a trumpet, as Michael had been doing, and gathered the people together. Uh, verse 28, follow after me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. They went down to the fords of Jordan and so on. They slew Moab at that time, verse 29, 10,000 men, all lusty old men of valor. That was Moabites. And there escaped not a man. So Moab was subdued that day, verse 30, under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest of 40 years. So that was a little bit about Ehud. And apparently his name, all these people have names and the meaning, as we found in Othniel. Ehud means confession or united. He was the son of Girah. Now, Gira means pilgrimage, or one who engaged his combat. So he lived up to his name, didn't he? Lived up to his father's name. He really entered into combat. And Ehud is a, a man who stands out from mere profession. How often we need men and women to stand out from mere profession. There's a lot of Christendom in profession. That's no good at all. We need people to stand out. Here is a man who lived up to his name, a pilgrimage man, a man who set out as a spiritual pilgrim with a clear confession. Look in verse three, line three, demonstrating his reality, a leader among the saints, a deliverer with life on display, and he certainly did. In line four, he was a man of Benjamin. Now, Benjamin, of course, one of the sons of Jacob, you can see the meaning of Benjamin, the son of my right hand. And of course, if you like, he was God's right-hand man, the same as the Lord Jesus in his humanity. He was a father's right-hand man in his humanity. And that's it. Now, Benjamin was a very small tribe. It was only a few thousand. But mighty men came from them, from Benjamin. That's certainly true. So there it is. Here is a situation where Benjamin, a small tribe, mighty men came from it. Next line down. They overcame their enemies. And with the sword, the dagger that Eglon made. And we can only overcome our enemy by the Spirit of the Lord and the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. When Satan came to Jesus to tempt Jesus, Jesus used the scriptures of Deuteronomy, it is written. That's the way. We're not called to fight the devil, we're called to resist him. James 4 verse 7, submit yourself to God, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's spiritual warfare, and it always works. You proved it, I proved it. That's certainly true there. So Eglon was king of Moab, and he was a nasty bit of work. And that's a problem, if you like, when the flesh, oh my, he was a man of the flesh, wasn't he? And the dagger went straight into him and closed over him. Closed over the dagger, his whole body, into his intestines. Terrible thing, really. But there it is. When the flesh and self gains upper hand, it's when we have problems as believers. Well, that's just practical. Uh, it's the same in the church in Revelation. The, these judges, you can parallel with the churches, seven churches in Revelation. 
And it's very interesting. That's what we've got here. The church in Revelation, this is a type of the church at Pergamos, the church of compromise. Pergamos church was free from persecution and moved in popularity. Is that where the church is today? We want to be popular. We don't want to be difficult. We don't want to be hostile. We don't want to be in opposition. That's what Pergamos was. And you think of the time of Constantine. Up to then, the church was persecuted. When Constantine came in, it made the Holy Roman Empire, should we say, religious. And even his pagan temples with their pagan priests, they said, we're on the emperor's payroll. So we'll become Christians overnight and we still want to stay on the emperor's payroll. Oh, they didn't become believers. That's what it is. That's Christendom. It's been there ever since. Constantine was no friend of the church. That's when compromise and popularity came in. And uh, that's a problem, isn't it? A loss of truth, compromise with the truth. Uh, that's what happened in that time. Israel compromised. God sent them into trouble. They cried out to the Lord. And he, God raised up his judge, Ehud, the man with the dagger, the man with the sword of the spirit. And the spirit of the Lord no doubt, came upon him. Ehud used a short, sharp sword. Now the Romans had a short short, sharp sword as well. And so did the, the Sicarii, the Jewish zealots, called the Sicarii, and was named after, a, again, a short sword, two-edged sword, which, which they fought the Romans. And we have the sword of the Spirit. And the word of God is a sharp two-edged sword, quicker, and, you know, piercing right to the very center of a person's life, just like Ehud and the dagger into Eglon's body. Parallel, just an example there. Interesting, isn't it? So that's it. Ehud, in his day, he was a man who was concerned for God's honor. And he put the Lord first. He was a willing servant. He was willing to be a leader, a servant and a deliverer. No one ever heard of him before. Came out, as it were, from the woodwork. That's what we need in Christian leaders today. And those who really are used of the Lord pay a price. We know that. Through their own truths. Think of what happened to people in the past. Hmm. However, we won't go into that, but all the martyrdom of the godly men in the past times. We won't go into that now. But there are those who paid the price for upholding the truth. So it is. So we read 2 Timothy 2.15, but there it is, the sharp two-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12 and Revelation 2.12, that's what the Lord said. Let's go to the Revelation 2 one, shall we? It's relating to the churches. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, go to Revelation 2, reference there in the short paragraph about Eglon using the sharp sword against Eglon, Ehud. Hebrews 4, 12, we know, quoted it, but in Revelation 2 and verse 12, the angel of the church in Pergamos, Pergamos means married to the world. Gamos meaning marriage. Pergamos, married to the world. And so they were a compromising church. These things says he which hath a sharp sword with two edges. 
the spirit and the word. Um, he wanted to do that because it was, verse 13, the place where Satan's seat was. Man, isn't that interesting? But they had a faithful man, Antipas, there who was a martyr, slain among them where Satan dwells. Satan will dwell quite happily in false Christendom. Anyway, let's uh, go again. Now notice, if uh, go back to Judges now, please, if you will. And we looked at it in chapter 3, verse 19, in the next paragraph, middle of the page 8. Ehud turned again from the quarries that were in Gilgal, chapter 3 and 19. We looked at that. Stone images were made at the quarries of Gilgal, and I've quoted already. And uh, if you go back, I quote here Joshua, chapter 4, and verse 20. Let's look back there. You can see it. Joshua chapter 4 and verse 20. Go back to the previous book. Joshua 4 and verse 20. See, there are lots of stones around there, of course. There was quarries there. And what did Joshua do? He picked out 12 stones they took out of the Jordan when they crossed it on dry ground. And Joshua did pitch in Gilgal and he set up the stones there. But also they put stones actually in the river Jordan as well. So the plenty of stones in the quarries, and that's what they did. And from those quarries, they made stone idols. That's interesting as well, isn't it? So they were made there. Stones were the place from the Jordan as a memorial. And Gilgal was a place of circumcision, Passover renewed circumcision, of course, setting apart. And... Uh, Yet it was a very place where they worshipped stone idols. My, what a contrast that was. So Pergamos, as I said, means married to the world, and that church was. And, uh, well, Pergamos itself as a church enjoyed the life of indulgence, comfortable, easy living. That's a danger for every Christian, of course, that is. Right, so in other words, the situation here is that as Ehud used the dagger to put Eglon to death, so it is that you and I also need to put our flesh to death. I've got a quote here from Romans chapter 6. Let's look at it, please. Romans 6. Let's go there. Romans chapter 6. I've got the verses between verses 4 and 13. We'll read those. There's no negotiation with the flesh. Eglon dealt with the flesh. Sorry. Ehud dealt with the flesh of Eglon. And we need the Lord by the spirit and the sword to deal with our flesh as well. That's a picture. Kill it off. Put the carnal to the sword. See yourself crucified with Christ. Romans 6, then verse 4. Let's read it through to 13. We're buried with him, with Christ, by baptism into death, like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so, we also shall walk in newness of life. That's resurrection life, alive from the dead, spiritually. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, living in the new resurrection life, new creatures. Knowing this, that our old man, that flesh, that old nature, is crucified. That's how the Lord sees it. We often resurrect it. He's put it to death. Our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, and henceforth we should no longer serve sin. 
For he that is dead is freed from sin. That's its consequences, its power, and its penalty. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dies no more. Death has no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died to sin once. But in that he lives, he lives to God, the Father. Likewise, reckon you also yourselves to be dead. Sit down and work it out. Reckon it. To be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, but you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield yourselves as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those who are alive from the dead, and your members of instruments as instruments of righteousness to God. Well, that's something all right. That needs some working through. That's not an easy one to try and grapple with, I know. Because we aren't dead, we're still alive. But if you like, our old man, that which is subject to all sorts of problems, reckoned to be on the cross for Jesus, but be alive unto Christ as new creatures in him, and live that way. Live in the righteousness of God like a resurrection life. Live in him. Live the newness of life. And the old nature won't get grip on us. It does occasionally, we know it. We raise it up. I've got only if the arm of flesh will fail you. It certainly does. The power of God through the word, the sword of God defeats the enemy and delivers the saints, as it did Jesus. Moab was subdued, but it wasn't destroyed. That's a picture of the carnal and the flesh. The flesh isn't destroyed yet. It's a constant enemy, and we'll fight and resist the will of God for our lives. Romans 6 again. So we're going back to uh, Judges again. Let's go back there. Judges. There's 80 years of rest. You can see that. We read it through. And uh, look in verse 30 of Judges chapter 3, last verse, verse 30. Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest fourscore years, 80 years. 80 years, long time. And they had rest for 80 years. No more problems, no more difficulties. It seems as if Israel was then obedient to the Lord. And certainly. Well, here was a man, Ehud, unknown, did the work of God, used the sword, defeated the enemy. That's certainly true. And there was peace in the land for 80 years. That's a long time, isn't it? And peace was preserved. Everything was right, so it appears. And he had peace longer than any other judge produced peace. Mm. Well, I don't know about you, but often in these circumstances I feel weak. But let's look. I've got the references there, and I will look at this because it's encouraging to us about weakness and strength. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's go there. 2 Corinthians 12. Put something in Judges 3. Come back to that. 2 Corinthians 12. Look at verses 9 and 10. You could add verse 10. I've only got verse 9. Add verse 10. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. This is what Paul says about his own experience, no doubt. Because he'd had a wonderful experience and been caught up into the third heaven. But the Lord allowed him to have a problem that kept him humble. 
Look in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 and 10. He said to me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness, a verse we know well. But we can be so familiar with the verse, we lose its cutting edge. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, my weaknesses, in reproaches, and you have plenty of those, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, you have plenty of that too. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then am I strong. Because the Holy Spirit gives us that strength. Now go on to Hebrews 11, just one verse, I've added it. You can add it if you wish to to your notes, Hebrews 11, Hebrews chapter 11, and verse 34. At the end of this long list of men and women as heroes of faith in the Old Testament, the Hall of Fame, the heroes of faith in the Old Testament, Hebrews 11, and look in verse 34, verse 34. There's a whole long list of them. In verse 32, it speaks of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and so on. Many in the book of Judges. Verse 34. I'll read 33 as well. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Which certainly Daniel was involved. Well, verse 34. Quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong. Waxed valiantly, increased valiantly in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, the enemy. When they were weak, the Lord made them strong. So when the Spirit of the Lord came upon them. That's certainly true, isn't it? So I've added there Hebrews 11, bottom of page Eight, now we come to another man going back to Judges 3. His name is Shamgar. Now, there's some judges which there's a lot written about them, like Gideon or like Samson. But you have sometimes here one verse about Shamgar. Here it is at the bottom of page 8, Shamgar, chapter 3 and verse 31. After him, after Ehud, was Shamgar, the son of Anath which slew the Philistines 600 men with an ox goat, and he also delivered Israel. Well, we don't know how long. It seemed that he was ruling in the western part of the land at the same time as Ehud was in other parts of the land of Canaan or Israel. He was judged in the same period, but in the west, you see in, my, in the notes there. The ox goat was eight foot long, six inches, in diameter, eight foot long, six inches in diameter, and had a sharp end. First Samuel 13, verse 21 says, the Israelites had a fire to sharpen their goads. Ecclesiastes 12, 11 says, the words of the wise are as goads. What is a goad for? Get moving, get moving. Huh? Well, that's Shamgar. Don't know any more about him. One verse. Compared with what we read about Gideon in three chapters, and Samson for many chapters later on. So Israel still did evil. Look in chapter 4, verse 1, where we come on to Deborah for a short time. Deborah with Barak, of course. Verse 1 of chapter 4 of Judges now. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord when Ehud was dead. There was a judge who was dead. They had a period of peace for 80 years. 
then after that, no doubt he was, uh, how long did Ehud live? I don't know, maybe living all of that 80 years, we don't know. Presumed that he was. When he dead, when he died, his influence gone, no leadership, the people just went back to where they were before. Hmm. Picture of things, isn't it? So he was a judge, as I say, Shamgar was, and uh, Israel stood at Ehud chapter 4. I've got another reference here which we looked at before, right at the very beginning in our studies on Judges, was 1 Corinthians 10, verses 11 and 12. These things are written for our learning. So there's a warning attached to that. These things are written in the Old Testament for our learning. Let's learn from it, not to be like that ourselves. So it says, be warned and take care. Let's look at page uh, 9. So here we have, <clears throat> concerning Deborah in chapter 4, here we have a new king, a king of Canaan called Jabin, and he was up in Hatzor, which is right in the very north of Israel, right up very north, almost towards Lebanon. I've been to Hatzor, and we read in the book of Joshua where Joshua burned the city of Hatzor. It was a quite a bit of fortress city, actually, Quite, quite well known to guard the northern part of Israel, and the Canaanites. And you may have been to Hatzor, I don't know. But there you can see the remains of the burnt city of Hatzor and its ruins. And uh, so that's pure archaeological documentation proving Joshua destroying Hatzor. But obviously the King Jabin uh, rebuilt it. And the ruins are there still. Let's look at that. Verse 2, chapter 4 of Judges. The Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, that reigned in Hatzor, the captain of whose host was Sisera, which dwelt in Harosheth of the Gentiles. Now that's very interesting, isn't it? Look at the top of page 9 for about that. It says there, Harosheth of the Gentiles. Now, Jabin was king of Canaan. It's interesting here. Here's a man whose name means intelligent, with worldly wisdom. That's what his name means, Jabin. Intelligent with worldly wisdom. That's Pergamos again, isn't it? Then you've got this other man named here, Sisera. His name means battle array. So he's a commander in the uh, forces of Jabin. And you've got Harosheth there. In, uh, in verse, uh, where is it? In verse, boom, boom. Yeah. Um, yes, Harosheth of the Gentiles. Now, you might have, perhaps in another version, I think I looked at the New King James, Harosheth HaGoyim, which literally means what you've got here. It means Harosheth in the land of the Gentiles. I was right up at the very north. Jabin had completely ruled that area, right up in the very north, even though Joshua had captured it and burnt it. Jabin took it over later on. Interesting. Harosheth, which means carving workmanship, a symbol of worldly activity and influence upon God's people by active opposition and warfare. He was a very strong king. And again, I'm using this situation of the churches in the Revelation 2 and 3. Pergamos again. Situation of Pergamos robbed believers of truth by presenting false teaching. There's a list of false teachers here in early church history. Arius, Apollinarius and Nestor were among those who were opposed by faithful men in the church. And there's a list of them there. Athanasius was a godly man 
who supported the teaching of the truth of the Trinity when Arius was saying that Jesus was only a man. You got that a bit later on, haven't you? Arianism was an attack on the deity of Christ. Apollinarianism was an attack on the true humanity of Christ, the opposite. Nestorianism made our Lord two persons instead of being the one God-man. God and man, complete. Holy God, holy man. These heresies represented the intelligence of men. Jabam was a man of intelligent with worldly wisdom. That's a problem that was also in the church through the early churches. You have men who applied worldly wisdom in their church. How many men today apply worldly wisdom in their church teaching? You mentioned just now about Jesus said, where the truth and life, and it was all this lady was talking about was motorways. Yeah, how about that? Well, we'll just leave that alone. So sharing over a break. So these heresies represented the intelligence of men. That's the problem. When men come in with their own worldly wisdom and intelligence, that is apart from the Lord's gift of wisdom and insight, and they just simply give sort of woolly teaching. That's heresy. Apart from the wisdom of God and the teaching and the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit. It was the same in the church at Thyatira. Now Deborah was a very godly woman. She had a godly, or we look at it a bit further on. If you look in verse 4 of Judges, go back to Judges 4. Children of Israel cried to the Lord in verse 3, For this man Jabin, with Sisera as his leader in the battlefield, 900 chariots, and 20 years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. Mightily oppressed the children of Israel with all this armor. And Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at that time. That's interesting. Deborah, and also got the end, Jael. Two women whom God used because Balak was weak. So God used a woman, and he still does. If men remain weak and won't stand up, God will use a woman. And that is often true. It's true in politics. It's true in Christian things, true in church things. That's it. But that isn't God's choice, not originally. But that's how it is. Um, the church at Thyatira, we know that Jezebel was a woman of great influence, but she was thoroughly immoral and wanted the people and the church of Thyatira to be immoral with her. And the Lord says, I cast you into the bed of adultery, all of you together. Thyatira, you read that, the church of Thyatira. And the other area, too, is the Lord says, I'm against the Nicolaitans. Made up of two words, Nicolaos, bosses over the people. Laos, the people, laity. And Nico means leadership. You know, in some uh, sportswear, you've got Nike or Nike, N-I-K-E. That means authority and power in your training, in your running. That's why it's called that, from the Greek Nike. So it's with authority and power. And in the church at Thyatira, the Nicolaitans have power over the ordinary people. Sorry, but that's been true in church history ever since. People in high religious so-called authority in the church, they lord it over the laity. And many of them are really quite ungodly. 
and that's through history. That's just by the Nicolaitans. That's in the church at Thyatira. Well, that's how it is. The other one says the doctrine of Balaam. What was the doctrine of Balaam? Well, Balaam encouraged the children of Israel to commit adultery and marry Moabite women. Same as Jezebel was getting the church to commit adultery and immorality. Jezebel in the Old Testament is a wife of King Ahab. She brought in the bear religion from Tyre and Lebanon, and that was, as I said before, an immoral, filthy religion which destroyed families and nations and marriages in Israel. And the Lord raised up his Elijah, always has his minority in the leadership. <coughs> <coughs> so there was this religious system of Thyatira. And even Israel loved religion, but it was a false one. Idols, as it was. Okay, let's go on. So Israel cried out for deliverance. They wanted to get back on the right path, and the Lord says, very well, I'll deliver you and raise up a judge. Look in chapter 4. Here's Deborah, prophetess, wife of Lapido, godly man. She judged Israel at that time. She dwelt under the palm tree. You can see children came up to her for judgment. They brought up their problems and left her to, well, what's the answer, Deborah? So she sent and called Balak, verse 6, son of Abinom, of uh, the Kedosh Naphtali, and said to him, Hath not the Lord of God was commanded, saying, Go and draw towards Mount Tabor, take with thee 10,000 men of the children of Naphtali and children of Zebulun, that's up in the north. Well, Mount Tabor, that's in the valley of Megiddo. It looks like an upturned pudding basin, actually. Quite a circuit, one like this. Right in the valley of Megiddo. Quite prominent as well. Mount Tabor. Yes, many a battle as the Israelites came down, running down Mount Tabor to defeat the Philistines and defeat these people as well. So that's interesting, isn't it? Deborah and Barak. Well, here we are. Barak was not a very strong man, was he? And he was going to get 10,000 men, children of Naphtali and children of Zebulun, up in the Northern Territory. Verse 7, I will draw unto thee the river Kishon, Sisera. Isn't that amazing? That the Lord says, I will draw Sisera down. Does it remind you of Ezekiel 38? I will put hook in the jaws of Gog and draw him down to Israel in order to destroy him. And the Lord did the same thing with Sisera. History repeats itself. Of course, one is still future history. It's true. So that's what it is. Captain of Jabin's army, verse 7, the chariots motor, and I will deliver him into your hand. Barak said to her, if you go with me, oh, I need you to hold my hand, Deborah, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, then I won't go either. And what does she say? Verse 9, I will surely go with you, notwithstanding the journey that you take shall not be for your own honor. He wasn't going to get any honor at all. Bit of a coward, perhaps. I don't know. But a weak man, anyway. Deborah was the one who was strong. The Lord shall sow scissor into the hand of a woman, which is Yael, of course. Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali, went up 10,000 men and so on. And the story goes on. And it's interesting as you go on further on the story. But let's look at the notes first, shall we? Um, here we have. Deborah, um, but midway down page nine, 
you've got Deborah. People confided in her, as she was a judge, verse 5. She knew the Lord and communicated his word. Deborah acknowledged male leadership. He looked to Barak. Her husband was Lapidoth, whose name means lamps or firebrands. So she had a good husband, didn't she? Deborah dwelt on the palms. Which is a sign of palm trees, a sign of prosperity and peace and blessing. It's true. Uh, won't go into the details of that. Palms are linked with righteousness. There's a reference to Psalm 92. We'll look at that in a minute. The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree, it says. And palm trees are engraved in Solomon's temple and will be in the future millennial temple as well, Ezekiel 41. Well, here we have Deborah lived between Ramah, which means high place, and Bethel, meaning house of God. This suggests that Christian believers positioned in the heavenlies. God has raised us up to be in the heavenlies. In chapter 1, 3, and later on in chapter 2, 6, we're seated secure in fellowship with God and his people. The Lord can use us and bring peace and hope and adversity in the church. There's a lot of adversity in the church today. So Barak, what does his name mean? Well, you've got that in the last paragraph. Barak means lightning. God has swift power to deliver. Quoting Matthew 24, 27 here, as the lightning comes out of the east and shines even to the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Like a flash of lightning, he will come. That's the second coming to Israel. Barak was the son of Ahinoam, which means a father of grace. And lived at Kadesh Naphtali, which means sanctuary of the wrestler. All these names are significant. You can think those through. But Barak was weak, but the Lord made him strong. Here's a comment for all of us, because we're in the Lord's army. We are equipped with the armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6, 12, and all the pieces of armor there for spiritual warfare. Those who live near the battle lines know the enemy and his attacks and tactics. Those who have an influence in the body of Christ and have a ministry in the body of Christ often get the attacks on the enemy first. I'm sure you agree with that because he likes to, the enemy likes to knock them down. Unfortunately, it happens sometimes. Those who live far off do not realize the enemy work because of lack of experience. A lot of passengers in the church, not many in the driving seat. It's rather sad, isn't it? Barak was a man who should have taken the leadership, but he was weak. So Deborah came in with Barak, but theirs was a victory, certainly true. You've got a reference there, we'll come to an end now, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 8. If the church doesn't sound as a sound of a trumpet, who can be ready for battle? If a church doesn't sound the proper, proper trumpet, who can be ready for battle? 1 Corinthians 14, 8. Barak refused to go into battle unless Deborah with him. We looked at that. Israel was outnumbered. Often we're outnumbered. And I'll just finish off with that quote at the bottom. In 2 Kings 6.16, where Elisha, with his son Gehazi, was surrounded in the city, and Gehazi was in panic, thinking the Syrian army were going to get them. And what did uh, Elisha say? Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. That's the enemy. And, of course, he saw the, the hills around and the city 
full of horses and chariots of the Lord, angels no doubt. So here is Barak, we look a bit more into her next time we meet next week, and Barak, and Deborah's her own song of victory is later on in chapter five. The victory of a woman, and also Yael, who put a tent peg into Sisera's temple. She was used to that, because there's a, perhaps someone who traveled along quite a bit, or often put tent pegs into the ground, pull them up when they move on. She was used to hitting a tent peg, wasn't she? For the tents, put the tent peg in the ground. She was a strong woman, no doubt, and she put a tent peg straight in his temple and killed Sisera. We'll look at that next time.